0: Hi, I'm Jim Martin. You know, we really appreciate the companies that we have support the show. We're very lucky to have them. But we also need your support because we built this show on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. And we need your support. So if you like what you're hearing here, you enjoy listening to Adventure Rider Radio and RAW, please drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button.
1: Hi, I'm Sam Manninger. i I'm with the St- side of lady. i mean, Grant Stra- Strang- Stra- Johnson,
2: Ben King, you. and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American made, heavy duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system, and it's easy to swap from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that's gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easier Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate the flat tire in less than three minutes, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. Best Dress is also the North American distributor for Googletech filters. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. www.cyclepump.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. It's free. www.maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. For today's episode, we've gathered together three experienced adventure motorcyclists, experienced travelers, and we've asked them for their tips. So out of that, we've got seven travel tips that everyone should know before they go. And it doesn't matter whether you're going on a round-the-world trip for five years or whether you're going for a month or two weeks. These will apply to you. And I guarantee you, none of them have anything to do with tires or oil. I promise you. We also have the best riding socks ever. I I think they're not just for motorcycling, the best socks for everything to do with outdoors. I absolutely have fallen in love with these socks, but don't roll your eyes at socks. I'm telling you, there's a story here. Stay with us. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. We got a good one for you. Packing up for a trip can be a lot of work, whether it's a weekend, a week, a month, or a several-year trip. There's so many aspects of getting yourself and your gear and your bike ready, it's kind of easy to lose your way. So we decided to ask three experienced motorcycle travelers for their thoughts or ideas or tips on things that can often be overlooked by travelers as they're getting ready to go. Well, René Cormier is a motorcycle traveler turned motorcycle tour guide. René did his own trip around the world after, I think he was working at a company at the time. In any case, the company was uh, was going to move and close up that location. So instead of moving with the company, he decided to go out and do a motorcycle trip. And, and that uh, ended up being a long-term trip for him that uh, when he was finished, he ended up writing a book called The University of Gravel Roads. And, um... Sometime after that, he decided that he was going to start doing his own tours. So I guess he hung out a shingle and started doing his tours. His tours have taken off like crazy um, in Africa and Mongolia, South America, and now he's starting in Canada. Now, I want to get Rene's input on this in particular because he's a tour operator now and he's a motorcycle traveler as well. So he's got quite a a sort of a, a broad perspective of things as far as motorcycle travel. Renee, you are a um, your motorcycle traveler. You're an author. You've written a book about your motorcycle travels. You're now a tour operator. Uh, I, I guess to, to start off with, before we get into some ideas and concepts about motorcycle travel and and your tips, maybe we should start off with just give, giving us a, a quick rundown on your motorcycle travel experience.
2: Sure. Now, the the, the type of traveling that I did as a solo rider um, or with friends back back when that trip was going on which was 2003 until 2009 almost was was very different from the tours that we run now you know my travel budget for the big trip was 25 bucks a day a lot of camping um, quite not rough in in a in a in a um, in a bad way just a very simple style of traveling and the tours that we do now are guided with support with um, a, a, a Guide on a motorcycle in the front of the group. There's a chase, track behind, chase truck behind us in, in Africa. That's a new sprinter van with a trailer and a spare bike. It's it's a very different style of traveling. And it's much shorter, of course. You know, that original around-the-world trip was four and a half years. And our tours now are between 14 days and, uh, you know, three weeks, more or less. But the um, the style of traveling is much different. You know, a lot of people that come on the guided tours have done rough traveling and and they've slept under bridges and in leaky tents and all of that kind of stuff but what seems now to be in favor is is to sit around the fire and talk about those days and then retire to a room with a hot shower and bed with clean clean white sheets and and ice cubes all the luxuries of of modern traveling so the the, the style of traveling is a little bit different however the places we visit are the same you know the canyons dunes uh, deserts um, the 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 things that we see are um, they're identical to what i saw when i was traveling by myself all those years ago
0: do you ever miss the 25 dollar a day budget type travel
2: well you know on when you're on the guide bike there's there's not much of the guide bike experience that is um, that can be directly related to riding for fun. You know, when when you're on the guide bike, you are counting headlights and and making sure that um, you remember to call the lodge about the vegetarian meal or someone's forgot their passport at the last hotel. You're kind of always thinking of the group setting. And on the twenty five dollar a day tour, um, when you're by myself, when I was by myself there. You've got time to daydream. You've got time to think about why is that mountain flat while that mountain over there is pointy. Um, and, and you have the luxury or I had the luxury of time, which was, um, which, which on the guided tours, we have a set hotel that we get to every night or a lodge that we get to every night and that's prepaid and, and we need to get there on the, on the, um, solo traveling side. If there happened to be a cool campsite that was looked, looked rather inviting and beckoning, but then you stop there and you stay for a night or two or three. So the time, the timelines are, are quite different between the two. Um, and, and both are, are glorious for, for their own reasons. I think with the guided side, some of the, some of the people, well, a lot of the people that we talk to, you know, late at night or on the campfire about traveling around the world in, in a solo way or in a lower budget way. Um, have said that they admire it they, they could never see themselves doing it and they could never see their their lives in a in a structured in a fashion that would let them do it you know they're busy with careers and families and and uh, spouses and all all the stuff that comes along with that that um, they, it just couldn't happen so they're glad that people have done it and they're happy to talk about it um, and and I'm happy to tell stories about it. And and they say that for on guided trips, that's as close as they can get to it. So here they come on guided trips. It's uh, maybe not the the um, cast all lines off and go sailing into the sunset for four years, but um, it's you know we all travel with what we're able to travel with and how. So I'm glad they're just out there getting a little bit of motorcycle time in.
0: Yeah, I mean, not everybody can uh, afford the time or even wants to put the time or the money, et cetera, into going on the open-ended trip or the round-the-world trip or whatever. I mean, some people just like to head out for short periods of time and, hey, nothing's wrong with anything that we choose to do. It's it's all part of the experience. But do you think that the, the travel with the guided tour has some similarities to it, uh, uh, um, to the traveling by yourself? In other words, will you get the same experiences? Will you… Will you? Um, I know you'll see the same places, but will you, would you have the opportunity to make the connections with people? Those sorts of things that you would get when you were traveling alone.
2: The, this, well, I can answer sort of you know with people and without people. So on the people side, I think traveling as a solo rider, there's no better way on this earth than trying to than, than getting to connect people when you're a solo rider. You you you're a bit smelly. You're you're certainly dirty. You're stopping a lot for tea or for lunch or for fuel and you are very approachable, I think, as a, especially as a solo person uh, for people to come up and ask, you know, where are you from and where are you going and what's the story and how much does your bike cost and where is your wife? All, all those questions that solo travelers get around the world. And traveling in a group uh, is is more intimidating for locals to come up and, and chat with you. You certainly get other tourists coming up and talking to you. Um, so on the people side, I think solar travel has got the the nod there. But on the um, on the locations side, we we try to work pretty hard with the our tour groups where we don't let all the cats out of the bag before we get there. And and we want to be able to have people have the same experience of coming up to a, a beautiful vista or um, a secret lunch spot or a mountain or a desert or a something and have them feel like they are the first person to do so, and uh, that involves us keeping our mouth shut, um, which is more difficult for some of our staff than others. But we 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 try to get them to um, don't uh, don't do too much foreshadowing because it's it's exciting for people to see it for the first time. Now, having said that, we get two types of riders. We'll get one, one version who wants to Google Earth every road that we go on and look at every hotel and the amenities and all that stuff, and then another the one. They just want to know what, what is the starting day? What time must they be ready? And that's all they need. That's all they want to know about. And, um, it's fun traveling with both.
0: And I I think one of the great things about having a guide is that you get the guide that's taken the time to learn the area, know the area and get you to that spot without any muss or fuss. You know, you, you get to see that spot where otherwise you could ride right by it. You could miss the essence of, of what you're visiting. So that's one of the cool things about a guide, I think. And, and that goes for anything, whether you're doing a, a motorcycle trip or a, a kayaking trip it's 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 the same
2: yeah we I think for a lot of the people that places where we travel it's not it's not unheard of to travel there alone I I did it Uh, many other people do it but we are dealing with a situation where people are are typically on a limited uh, time budget and if they were to go there alone and if they're traveling down road a and I'm sure they'll have a great time on row a but if they did if they chose road b then that's where someone lost their head a hundred years ago. And that's the mountain named after that dude. And uh, here is a secret little road that went to a special place that happened 300 years ago. You know, um, it, it comes with, it comes with more of a story um, if you know where what to look for and, and, um, and have help someone help explain it for you.
0: When it comes to travel, what do you think are a few of the important things that are often overlooked? You know, I think a lot of times we focus on on things like um, products we're going to take with us, etc. But but what do you think of? What what are the things that come to your mind that maybe are the less discussed things, but but very important things you've learned with travel?
2: Well, i i've come from um, I've come from the bulk of my traveling, at least as a, as a solo rider, um, from a very budget quite a low budget for, for my style of traveling. And what I discovered along the way is that for a lot of times when problems would, would present themselves, or another way of looking at it is when opportunities present themselves, um, they can be solved with either a combination of time and or money. And, And what I learned early is that since I didn't have the money, I had to use time as my leveraging factor. So if I was waiting for parts and it was going to cost me, um, you know, two weeks for a part to come in on a bus or I could have it FedExed for $500, well, then I have to I have to play to my strengths. I've got the time. So let me find a place to put in my tent and I'll wait somewhere uh, two weeks for the part. And um, people travel with different sets of... Um, um, scenarios. And, and for me, you know, if it was, uh, I have the time, so I'll use the time. If there was someone else who's coming down on a two week vacation and this part, um, is going to ruin their entire vacation, then maybe it makes sense for them to, to air freight it down by FedEx or DHL and have their trip continue. But I've always found having more time than money to be the more valuable of the two currencies.
0: So what you're saying with that is, is basically uh, um, that you know, time and money is going to solve your your problem. Or is that sort of a, um, like maybe a comforting thing, really, saying like, don't worry about it? It's either going to take one of the two, it's going to sort it out, and you're definitely going to have one of the two.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, and as long as you go with one of the two, then things are looking up in your favor. If you go with neither of them, then you're, you'll have an adventure. I'm just not sure if it'll be a... <laughs> <laughs> a pleasant one or not? <laughs> and if you have both, lots of time and lots of money, then well, good for you. You've you've hit the lottery. But um, I don't know if that's so common.
0: Okay, what's next?
2: So one more uh, one more item that um, that I know that was particular to my instance was in the week preceding my initial departure date from Vancouver. I was devouring websites and traveling websites and parts and accessories catalog, and going on a on a buying binging spree for things that I thought would would be critical to this survival of this expedition, but in hindsight, just turned out to be completely uh, superfluous gear that I only bought because I was afraid of this trip not um, being successful. And I can understand why I did it in a little way because the trip is about to start. I'm very nervous about being able to pull this thing off. Is it going to be successful? The only thing that I can control is how much stuff I have with me. I can't control how the bike is going to perform in a month or a year or how I'm going to perform in a month or a year. But I can have this stuff. And that was a sort of a, a slippery slope in, in down a wrong way street in um, trying to – trying to ensure the success of the expedition by having stuff with me. And I think that happens to a lot of folks. And I also think that within a week or two of leaving, there's boxes of stuff being post home to yourself, um, realizing that, man, this this collapsible saw with piano wire just isn't necessary or, um, you know, five sheets of solar panels and that kind of stuff. So I, I refer to that gear, last minute gear as fear gear, as stuff that we buy that we think we're going to need. Or just in case we end up meeting the president or prime minister of the country, you need a, a, a suit jacket and appropriate tie. And I think all that stuff, as long as you're aware of of maybe the, the incorrect reasons for buying the stuff, um, just, yeah, just be aware of it
0: that sort of spills over into packing, as you sort of alluded to there as well, because um, whether you're buying it or whether you're doing that last minute packing, because I think we've all done that when you're about to leave and you're looking, well, maybe I'll just take that thing that I wasn't going to take before and I'll take that piece and I'll take that piece. And then, Like you say, your next thing you know, you're going to have to mail it home or you're stuck with all this stuff that you're you're hauling around.
2: Yep. And that happens with tools and it happens with, and, and the tricky thing is is you can't with like tools and spare parts, you'll never have the right thing that, Breaks anyway, so um, it's uh, it's it's being comfortable with the fact that you're not prepared or, or you cannot be perfectly prepared, and, and coming from a working world where we should know all that stuff, um, it's sometimes difficult to get your head around that it's okay to be incomplete. It's okay to leave on this big journey without knowing all the answers because we don't know all the answers and we try and buy things to make us feel better about having them or at least having them addressed or having them planned for or prepared for. But it's, um, it's a fool's errand and uh, it doesn't always work out that well. Luckily it's not a, it's not a an overly damaging part to the trip. You mail home a bunch of boxes and, and you learn like learning no other way of the stuff that you need and the stuff that you don't need. Yeah. but it's an important lesson and uh, <laughs> everyone I think everyone learns it the same way
0: I really like that though 72 hours and and you called it fear gear I, I like that so whether you're buying it or whether you're packing it you know put a moratorium on that with 72 hours and that's your calm down time I, I really like that so what what else do you have
2: well another one I think in and it kind of follows on the heels of buying too much gear before you go but um it comes under the general category of having too much stuff on the bike or having too much stuff with you you know weight weight is of paramount importance especially for those people who have or will be end up picking up their bikes and a big part of weight is clothing and we see it sometimes on the guided side too when people come to a guided tour the um, suitcase is full of stuff, you know, ten, 10 pairs of socks and 10 shirts and five pants. And I can understand them never being to a place like Africa or South America where um, y- you don't know where the place is and you don't know how to dress for it. But sometimes it feels like um, people think they're being dropped into the middle of Mars. And um, one of the things that we try and tell them before they come over is like, listen, if you, if you pack light – and you find yourself in need of a sweatshirt, we can find a sweatshirt. We can find a a warm coat. We can find you extra socks. And in fact, one of the – I've been meaning to do this as part of a a fun blog to do um, or experiment to do is to start one of our bigger trips, a 22-day trips, with just the clothes that I have on and to go through the tour, buying a pair of socks as I need them or buying a shirt as I need it, just to show to people that we don't need a lot of stuff on tour. Mm, and, and that's okay. on a guided tour. Now, you, you pull that back into the scenario of the solo tour, solo tour person. Man, if you, if, if on the coldest day that you think you're going to ever have, you should be wearing almost everything that you own. Anything else is gratuitous. So if you've got a couple of pairs of socks, you should be wearing them all. If you've got long underwear and then long pants and then your riding gear, you should be wearing it all. Um, now The trouble with that, of course, is we don't know how cold the days are going to get. But I think the, I think the thought process is, is rather sound. Take less rather than more. Wear it all when you're cold. And if you find yourself desperately lacking in one area, then pick it up. And I would would actually hazard a guess that if you, once you pick it up, um, you're not going to probably need it for the rest of your trip. You'll probably need it for the next little cold bit of your trip. And then at which point you can donate it to someone who might need it or mail it back to you, back to your house uh, with your other boxes of gear that are waiting there for you.
0: Renee, those are great tips. Thanks very much. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes to your book, The University of Gravel Roads, and also to your company, which we didn't mention is Renadian Adventures. What's the website for that?
2: It's uh, straightforward, www.renadian.com.
0: Renee, thanks again. I appreciate it.
2: My pleasure, Jim. Nice chatting with you again.
0: Motorcycle traveler, author, and now tour operator, Renee Cormier, from his home in Summerlin, BC, Canada. Of course, you can find out more at his website, as he said, renadian.com. And um, on that website, you'll find that he has tours in Africa, Canada, Mongolia, and South America. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. For Graham Field, his introduction to travel was through family vacations, and once he caught that bug, it only grew further. He went around the world backpacking, he did cycling in China, and while he was in the U.S. on an extended stay, he began looking at long-distance motorcycle travel. Among other trips, he did a 11,000-mile trip to Alaska, and then he found himself back in the U.K. on a TV show. Yeah, but you didn't expect it to go there, did you? On that TV show, he announced that if he won the contest that he was in, he'd take the winnings and do a long motorcycle trip. Well, he won. And the rest is history. He is now a well-known author for motorcycle travel. He's a respected traveler. He's a regular co-host on our Adventure Rider Radio Raw show, He's published three books, In Search of Greener Grass, Different Natures, and Eureka. He writes all kinds of magazine articles, and and although he's from the UK, he now lives in Bulgaria. So when we decided to put together this episode on some things that you need to know about motorcycle travel, I had to ask Graham, because I knew he would approach my question, well, differently, and he didn't disappoint. Now, the only thing is, is Graham is in India right now on vacation with his girlfriend. So to catch up with him, as you can imagine, we had to do a little technical wrangling. And part of the deal is here, this is something we'd never normally make our interview, but (laughs) it's funny. So I'm going to leave it in. Graham is staying at a hotel, but obviously he's not paying enough money to get a good internet connection or anything else. So he leaves his hotel when we can't get a signal. He runs across the street to a fancy hotel and then goes up and he tries to sit on their patio and use their (laughs) Wi-Fi. So you're going to hang out in the lobby there and pretend you're a customer?
3: Hang on a minute. I can't really hear you. Where's the Uh, speaker level?
0: (laughs) Okay, so that's a much better connection. Why don't you stay at this hotel? This is much better.
3: It's too expensive. I can't stay here. I just come here for breakfast. It's included. You (laughs) see... the. Rumstein is a little bit higher, got a much nicer view, but it doesn't have any facilities. So I come to this place for breakfast. That's how come I know their internet code. So I'm sitting in their beautiful gardens on their marble steps looking like a (laughs) smelly internet stealing hippie. But what can you do?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's fire up before we end up losing the internet on ourselves. Um, yes where in india are you anyway
3: if you look at the triangle which is the india and stuck your finger in the middle of that triangle your finger will probably be quite close to where i am right now
0: (laughs) say that again
3: (laughs) well india is basically a triangle and if you were to stick your finger in the middle of that triangle that's pretty close to where i am
0: (laughs) oh i see what you're saying so what are you doing in india though
3: uh, well, at the moment, I was sitting on a really cold marble step of an ice hotel, stealing internet so I can talk to you. But when I've when got a really cold ass. <laughs> this marble is no, it really drains the heat from your bottom. Yeah, well, the weather's probably um, really
0: nice in India right now.
3: Yeah, but it's early in the morning, so the marble hasn't warmed up yet. Um, ah. I'm at uh, I'm in an old British hill station, so I'm about um, three and a half thousand feet above sea level. Uh, so it's a lovely climate. It, it rises into the high 20s during the day, but it does cool down at night. And I came here last year with my girlfriend. We just loved it so much. It's a really relaxed place. No beggars. Nobody's asking you for money. Everybody's very polite and friendly. It's not typical of what a lot of India is. And in the 10 days we've been here, we've seen three other Western tourists. So we're quite a rarity here.
0: course, oh, so you're off the beaten track, so to speak.
3: It is. It is. It seems, which is why I'm not being quite vague and saying it's sort of in the middle of India because I don't want it to be <laughs> invaded.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. You're, you're keeping it a secret. Okay, I get it. Keep it. But, but I, I think they're going to need other customers there to keep that hotel open.
3: Yeah, there's there's plenty of Indian tourists here. It's just it's not popular with the Westerners. It was in the Lonely Planet from uh, the early '90s says then that the place I'm staying in was pretty run down and uh, 25 years later, yeah, it's pretty run down.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to talk to you about a few things that people ought to know about motorcycle travel. But first, before we do that, I want to talk a few minutes about what travel you've done for for those who may not know the travel or even the extent of the travel. You've traveled, I guess, a bunch of different ways. You've traveled by bus, um, like backpacking. You've traveled by motorcycle. Where did you start traveling?
3: Well, uh, it depends how far you want to go back. I mean, my parents were quite... uh Quite adventurous by their standards, and we would go on family holidays to former Yugoslav countries or down to Cyprus. Old enough to do it independently, did the backpack thing, uh, sort of around backpack thing, and then down to South America. Then got into cycling, so cycled through India and China, Sri Lanka, Thailand. And then started doing the traveling on motorcycle, which took me over to Mongolia, South Korea, um, Azerbaijan, Iraq.
0: Ah, the internet connection. Graham cuts out here, but what he's saying is he's done extensive motorcycle travel. He comes back, though. Hang on.
3: Travelling by motorcycle has been quite extensive, I suppose you'd say.
0: So when it comes, I mean, a lot of times when we talk about um, traveling, there, there's some common questions that come up and we, we all know this. Often it's, it's questions about gear and what to pack and, and motorcycles. But if you had some points that you were going to say, let's say two, three points that you were going to make to somebody who is trying to consider travel or consider motorcycle travel, um, what, what would one point be? We'll start with one, obviously, and go through the rest. But, but
3: what would be the first thing you would say? Well, I'm having to admit myself that I'm a bit of a become a bit of an old school traveller, which is inevitable when you're in your on the same age as you, Jim. When you're sort of in your fifties and you remember how things were, um, I am becoming increasingly annoyed and frustration at the electronics and the gadgetry that people seem to think are a necessity. And I really don't think they are. I mean, I know I'm sitting here in an Indian hotel talking on my phone with my laptop in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a degree of hypocrisy You're in what I am You're such hypocrites. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, and I find myself when I'm at the shows um, saying this to, to, particularly to the younger people who want to do it, whilst they're standing there videoing or got their recorders out of their phones, it's like, I just... I'm beginning to absolutely despise this electronic stuff. I mean, I've always been against the sat-nav because in my opinion, it eliminates the action with locals because while you've got little digital to go, you're not gonna stop at a junction and ask someone the directions. And the interaction is always the thing that you pick from your trip, the thing that you remember. And I've had some wonderful experiences with that. Not only that, but when you do stop to ask someone directions, you're probably going to find out a place better and not mentioned on booking.com or your guidebook. For me, spreading out a map on the table of a restaurant will attract a bunch of enthusiastic and knowledgeable locals who want to point at whether it's good roads, good campsites, nice hotels. That. Is, is, is a wonderful aspect that you lose when you have your digital directions already done then and this, there was a classic example I was in Macedonia in this cafe not looking at my phone just looking around and this guy pulled up on a GS he stabbed at his sat nav then he pointed at his phone and was playing around with that and then he put up his side stand and went off. He didn't even look around him. He didn't even see my bike. He was oblivious to everything that was around him. And I see it more and more, people staring at their phones. If you're, particularly as a lone traveller, if you choose to sit in that restaurant, pick up their Wi-Fi and look at your phone, no one's going to approach you. But if you put down your phone and you are just a little bit more aware of, of people and conversations, then you get involved in them, then you get approached. And... Um, this whole thing of, we, we, we landed um, in, in Mumbai uh, a couple of weeks ago, got in at four o'clock in the morning into our room and uh, my girlfriend wanted Wi-Fi because she just wanted to contact her mum, so she'd arrive, make sure her daughter's all right. And uh, I couldn't get Wi-Fi, it didn't really matter, it was four o'clock in the morning, sleeping was more important. But there was this frustration that my phone wouldn't connect. And I just think, I'm in a beautiful city. It's four o'clock in the morning. Sleep is quite important because tomorrow we get to explore. Yet there is this instant frustration caused by by internet and connection, which I didn't even need. I know in India, it's become... 25 years ago, people would put out their hands... Rupees, rupees. Now they hold up their phone and say selfies, selfies. <laughs> Everybody wants a selfie. Of you. If, if you want to know what it must be like to be famous and you've got a, a Western complexion, come to India because you will just be inundated with people wanting your photograph. I mean, we're at a little temple and about seven elderly gentlemen came down these steps and their phones were in their hands like... Selfie, selfie. These are guys in their 70s. It's it's almost like, um... It's like, uh, it's like... I don't know. It's like some sort of obsessive stamp collection. Selfie, selfie. Must have selfie. And, uh, Passing a group of school children, all very polite, all very lovely. Hello, selfie, selfie. And so they're taking selfies. It's not just one, because as soon as one's taken, everybody else is there with their phones. And you just surround it. almost gets hysterical by these people who demand it. Then the school teacher takes a photograph of the schoolgirls with us. Then the school teacher turns her phone around and she wants a selfie. I can only imagine it's going on Facebook or some more modern uh, I know, social media medium, but I was sitting on a bus and there was a young lad in front of me scrolling through his smartphone and his feed was just selfies. People, his friends, assuming his friends, which he scrolls up, likes, scrolls the next one, likes, giving each one about a half a second of his attention. So this is what we've become. It's just this need to, to, to document it via selfies. It, it, it's just this like I, I need I need to prove that I'm here. I need likes. I need approval of what I'm doing, rather than actually experience in it. This is so. I've a kind of topic here. We're now talking about you know the, the the craze of Indian smartphone users, but across the board, there seems to be this travel for likes as opposed to travel for experience. Now. Again, total hypocrite I am now. I've got a few people's blogs that I read and love to read. A guy who's canoeing through, kayaking through South America. Uh, Someone who's training in Africa to become a safari guide. And I find it very interesting. I have no want to do those things, but I really enjoy reading the blogs and what they're doing. So equally, I do Facebook my adventures or my travels because people do follow them but it's a very thin line between this is what I had for dinner and here's me riding my bike past some monkeys and I I struggle with it but I just find that when you're away do you really want to spend all that time searching for internet writing blogs posting your selfies, staring at your sat-nav, downloading your coordinates and all those other things which are taking you away from actually witnessing the country that you're in.
0: So you're not really saying don't take this stuff. What you're saying, I think what you're saying is figure out a balance before you go so you actually know what you're doing.
3: I think the balance is the thing. I think perhaps what I've said has just turned to one long non-stop rant. (laughs) (laughs) So, just find a balance. I guess that's my point. It, it, it's very relevant in my mind at the moment as I'm traveling through India and what I'm seeing. So, and I'm sure other travelers will bring up very valid points. But if I can just be concise, control the electronics, be aware that there are other ways of communicating in the country you're in and navigating the country you're in. And it is so much more rewarding and fulfilling than to just be a slave to your electronics. I think that's my point.
0: And that's great because that does co- kind of go along with some things I've heard already is that um, a lot of it has to do with balance, figuring out what sort of balance you want before you leave and before you get caught up in doing all the safe selfies and and getting all the photographs and posting and posting and posting, figure out if that's what you want to do, great, then go for it then do that. But if it's not, if it, you, want, you want to experience the culture and, and the whole reason that many people travel, then that's what you want to work out in advance, sort of get your head around that.
3: I think so because... Surely when you come back, the memories you want are of the people, the events that occurred and have more to say than just, well, the Internet there was terrible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good point. Graham, I'm going to let you go before the Internet completely dies on us because we're we're just we're just not doing well with technology. And it's probably because the government is listening there and you're complaining about it. And they're saying, well, if you're going to complain about it, then why should we let you use the Internet?
3: Yeah, yeah i must admit i've just had a very hypocritical rant <laughs> so yes i should probably go back to my hotel and and uh facebook i've just been on adventure rider radio
0: <laughs> hey can you do me a favor when we hang up can you get your phone out and take a selfie of where you are i will i will do that <laughs> Send it to me. i really want that okay okay have fun enjoy okay. your vacation i'll talk to you when we do raw
3: Okay, speak to you later, Jim. Bye.
0: <laughs> well, that was Graham Field from his vacation in India. And he actually did snap that selfie and send it to me. So I've got it in the show notes. <laughs> You've got to go comment on the show notes just to uh, make a point about his selfie. Anyway, grahamfield.co.uk is where you find out more information about Graham. He's got his books there, like I said, all three books and numerous other things. He's got the, the uh, combo set A little pannier box it's made of cardboard but it's it's actually made up from his pannier which is kind of cool anyway in search of greener grass eureka different natures available all over the place um, and from his website and of course that link will be in our show notes coming up after our short break we've got sam manicom with some great tips we also have the sock story stay with us Well, we're not far away from one of the biggest, no, sorry, we're not far away from the biggest overland event in North America, really. It's called Overland Expo West. Coming up May 17-19, 2019, Fort Tuthill County Park in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, it is the event to go to for overlanding for both motorcycles, four-wheeling, any kind of overlanding. They've got um, Camel Trophy Expedition Skills Area for four-wheelers. They've got a Motorcycle Expedition Skills Area. It's um, been redesigned from 2018. Bill Dragoo from Dragoo Adventure Rider Training will be there. DART can learn your adventure riding skills. There's just just so much. I can't even stop there. i got to keep going. Overland driving course, uh, hands-on training pavilion, Um, navigation classes, first aid, demo areas, They've got all kinds of exhibitors, uh, kids' adventure area, roundtable panels at their pavilion. So you can learn more if you want to go to a specific area, Africa, Australia, Mongolia. Um, they've uh, they've got um, an Overland Theater and Film Festival. They've got a picture of Ted Simon here on the website, actually, because Ted Simon's going to be there. there. There's so much going on. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you about it. It is the Overland event to go to. You're going to be there with like-minded people, but it's really important. This is really important. you got to buy your tickets online. You can't buy them at the gate. So www.overlandexpo.com. Get yourself a ticket. Get to the biggest Overland event of the year. www.overlandexpo.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. So if you're going to email them or contact them, ask them questions, do anything like that, can you just do us the favor and throw in there, Adventure Rider Radio? (laughs) www.overlandexpo.com. The owner of IMS Products is Scott Wright. He's a former Baja 1000 winner. He's an avid adventure rider. And you know, to me, I just love dealing with a company where right at the top of the company is somebody who's passionate about the product. And that's really been IMS right from the start. They started in 1976. They have been passionate about producing top quality parts for motorcyclists just like us ever since then. They now make a full line of adventure motorcycle pegs specifically for us, made of cast certified 17-4 stainless steel, certified heat treating, they're built in the USA, they're warranted for life to me, you cannot do better and you know why I'm saying that? Because I run the product as well. I have them on my bike. I wouldn't talk about them if I didn't think they were top notch. Honestly, I think they are top notch. products. I want you to drop by their website Look at the pegs they've got for your bike. They've got a bunch of different models there. If you have trouble figuring out what peg is for you, give them a call. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio and tell them you're wondering about how you choose the peg for your bike. It really comes down to personal preference, but um, they can certainly help steer you and maybe talk to you about the way you ride and give you some recommendations. Again, www.imsproducts.com and anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The name Sam Manicom is synonymous nowadays with motorcycle travel, I think. Sam's a regular co host on our ARR Raw show, the monthly roundtable style talks that we do here for Adventure Rider Radio. He writes for all the top publications in adventure motorcycling. He's um, an advisor for the Ted Simon Foundation. No doubt his name shows up if you had a list of who's who in moto travel nowadays. Sam uh, had spent eight years on the road traveling, um, riding his BMW R80 GS. He went through, I think it was 55 countries. And on top of his countless magazine articles, I couldn't imagine how many there are. He's written four books that cover his eight-year journey around the world. He regularly does presentations at shows and dealerships. So when you're looking for advice on moto travel, you're looking for something different. Well, Sam is a wealth of knowledge. Now, same as when we do Raw, I really value Sam's input on everything we talk about because he's got a good sort of view on the world, on travel, and he's he's a type of guy that can point things out that many of us miss, things that we just will walk by. Uh, Sam has a way of, of spotting those and pointing out just how valuable they really are. Sam, you consider yourself, uh, or would you consider yourself a... Um, well, I guess I should say, what would you consider yourself? I mean, you're a traveler, no doubt. You live and breathe it and you do it full time. What do you call yourself? Um, a, a traveler,
1: oh, without doubt. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, I, I, I love to travel. I'm fascinated by um, other countries, the cultures, the geography, the landscapes, the histories. Um, we live in an absolutely amazing world and being able to get out there and, and learn from it um, is just a wonderful thing to do.
0: All types of travel, too, because you just came back from a trip. I know this may not be something you normally do, but you just came back from a trip with your mom.
1: <laughs> I did. Um, and you're quite right. It was something that is absolutely not what I normally do. <laughs> um,
0: yeah,
1: I've 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 traveled with bicycles and hitchhiked and bused and trained and sailed a bit. And, of course, um, by motorcycle, which is my passion. Um, but this time, my mother had... Um, an item on her bucket list. And, you know, she's 87 years old, so she needs to be ticking those things on her bucket list off. And um, she uh, she asked me if I would go with her um, to explore some of the um, Indian Ocean islands. And the expression on her face was just wonderful to see, the nervousness that I might say, oh, I'm sorry, Mum, I don't have the time, or something like that. But when I said yes, you know, her face just zinged alive. And, um, yeah, she packed her walking sticks and her sarong, and off we went, and we had an absolute ball on a cruise liner now, for me, that's a completely alien world, but the 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 opportunity to people watch and to learn from um people that i would never normally rub shoulders with was a really interesting
0: thing. Well that, that's um, what hang on let me let me just ask you that. Mm, so you went with your mom obviously you can have fun because it's your mom but did you also mm, see it as a travel thing? Did you get a travel experience from it as well? Yes, I did. Um I
1: went to places that I might not have got to ordinarily. Um, and it opened my eyes to places in the world that I've seen on television but I haven't really heard and I haven't smelt. Everywhere you go, every country, every city, every town um, has its own sounds and its own smells. And for me, part of travel is when you can get all of your senses to come alive. It's not just seeing things, it's, it's everything else. Um, and Mauritius, for example, I would love to go back to Mauritius. And I, I found us, you know, myself walking around there with mum um, and uh, making sure she didn't wobble off the pavement, but keeping an eye on what the locals were riding. Oh, yeah, OK. I wonder whether I could hire one of those somewhere if I came back and did a trip here. So there were a couple of places where that was going through my mind. Um, the island of uh, Réunion. Um, that blew me away. It's not a very big island, but there were big KTM and um, GSs there. So um, that had my eyes well and truly shining.
0: I want to ask your advice, but before we do that, just in case somebody doesn't know, just give a quick rundown on your your motorcycle travel experience.
1: (laughs) Well... um, I uh, I set off to ride the length of Africa. I'd been riding a motorcycle for three months by the time I got to the edge of the Sahara Desert, which felt like an incredibly good idea when I was at the um, the few weeks planning stage that I had. Um, but all the way across Europe, I was thinking, Sam, you idiot, what are you doing? But once I got to Africa, then the trip just started rolling and what a phenomenal experience. By the time I got to the bottom of Africa, I could not think of a good reason to go home. Um, I'd been wild camping and um, staying in local hotels and things like that, camping sites. Um, so I still had a fair amount of money left. Um, and so I carried on for another seven years. So eight years in total um, around the world. And um, yeah, yeah, incredibly lucky to be able to do that. You know, the key was um, suddenly realizing that I didn't like my job. I'd been doing it on autopilot. Um, and then realizing that I was completely free. I had no responsibilities. I didn't owe anybody any money. Um, my family were well. I didn't have any kids or pets. Um, so just suddenly realizing that, wow, you've got to do something and now because you may never be this free again. Um, and over a few beers, um, I thought actually riding a bike through Africa sounds like an excellent idea. So, um, yeah, that was how it started. Beer is a dangerous thing, isn't it?
0: What you're describing sounds a lot like being a teenager.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you know, sometimes we can put an awful lot of fears in the way of things and they can stop us doing stuff where actually we should go and have a go because so often the fierce side of things actually um, isn't reality
0: funny as you're talking about going through africa i i'm instantly thinking my mind starts to race a, a different comments i want to make because i've read your books that you've written about the trip uh, the four books starting with into africa but i, I know that's going to take us down a, a rabbit hole but uh, th- those four books are about your that journey that you did the, the seven years around the world but you also you still travel now you're you're going to the states fairly regularly i mean i know i think you went to spain not long ago
1: mm. yeah i mean <laughs> traveling is is my life um because of the books magazine articles and i just love getting out there and and learning um i'm thoroughly enjoying traveling in the u.s when berget and i um that's uh, my partner uh, we met um in year two of the trip and uh, year four four of the trip um, the end of year four we started traveling together uh, she was on her own bike um, with even less miles experience than I had. She had only had 600 miles experience when we started riding in, in Africa together. But by the time we got to the, to um, North America and up into the USA, um, she was a darn good rider and we just didn't have enough time. What a huge continent that is with so much to see. So nowadays, having the opportunity to go back on shorter trips um, and explore a little bit more of each area as I go, that's um, that's a wonderful thing to be able to do.
0: Well, some of what you do you're doing now, I know, is is going to a lot of shows. Also, doing um, presentations at, um, at dealerships and things like that, where you're actually talking about your mm-hmm. travels. And you, I know you have several different presentations that you do, and I'm, I'm sure some people that are listening now have been to some of your presentations. When you're there at the shows, etc., I guess particularly at the shows, because I think with that you get a lot of people coming up who are maybe somewhat interested in travel and they probably think it's all about what bike you choose or what tire you choose or what helmet you're wearing. And maybe it is, because it's what I want to put to you now. Out of those questions that you get, what would you actually like to talk to people about instead? If there were, you know, um, some things right off the bat that you would like people to understand about travel that you think are sort of paramount, what, what what would one be? Okay, before I say that, um,
1: can I just say that I'm a firm believer in that the only stupid question is the question that doesn't get asked. Mm. And I really like it when we get to the end of a presentation and the first question comes at me because – if people are interested in going travelling or want to know more about it, then, yeah, I just love to share um, the, the bits and pieces of knowledge that I've picked up along the way. And, yes, it can be tyres or what tent or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I love it when people ask the questions. Sometimes I have the chance to get on to something that's um, slightly more philosophical or just some um, basics about you, So I think about those as being you, the traveller, essentials. And the first one has to be um, the most important thing that you can pack is a smile. A smile? Yeah, a smile. Now, this may sound incredibly weird, but I think that if everybody starts their day when they're on the road with a smile to themselves in their mirrors um, and then intentionally go out and aim to smile at other people as they travel... um, all of a sudden the quality of their journey increases um, hugely. And I'm a real advocate of um, looking out for opportunities to smile at people. The more um, I do this, the more I actually want to smile. And the more I smile, the more people feel that they've been given a gift, because a smile is a gift and it costs nothing. And I get that smile back. And the more I get smiled at, the happier I feel too and the more people i think that realize the value of the smile and do it the happier they have a trip it's it's a connect, a smile is a connection between each person and a stranger a, a smile's a unique opportunity and it doesn't require language and that's the beauty of it for people who are doing long distance traveling or doing let's say a month's travel around their own country into places that they've never been to before um The Dalai Lama said something which I quite rather like. And he says, He said, It's very important to generate a good attitude, a good heart as much as possible. From this, happiness in both the short term and the long term for both yourself and others will come. And he's so right, isn't he? Do you remember that old saying, Leave nothing behind you except for your tire tracks? Mm -hmm. Well, I love that saying. Because, yeah, too many people leave litter and all of that sort of stuff. So leaving our tire tracks behind, that's got a a kind of nice sensation to it, doesn't it? But I think it's not 100% right. I think we should be leaving smiles behind us too. Um, The smiles that we'll be taking with us are actually some of the best memories of our journey. The smiles we leave behind, well, we're ambassadors for our countries and for our own cultures, and every smile that we live leave with a local person wherever we're travelling is just a little image of what our home country is really like um, because most people that we know are good people. And so it's, it's a great way of sharing that. So, yeah, um, look out for opportunities to smile.
0: I really like that. Now I'm going to put the um, Dalai Lama quote that you gave there in our show notes, so that um, Mm. if anyone's interested in what that is, they can they can go and find that. Okay, so um, what would be next? Okay, well, travel
1: is not a case of putting notches on an imaginary gun belt.
0: Mm. So you're talking about um, what are you talking about? Like stickers on the panniers? You mean? Well. I'm, I meet people who
1: are going out and their intention is to reach a particular goal and they're going to have to stretch themselves, as, as in a place to ride to, and they're going to have to stretch themselves well and truly to get there. And I get the feeling that they're doing that because they think it's what should be done. Um. And I think that that comes back to no more than doing um, a journey to impress others. And I, I just think people need to really do the trip for themselves, make it happen in the way that they want to. And when people start to plan with that in mind, that's when they start discovering the possibilities for their own journey. And they also start to find out things about themselves that they didn't know were there because they're focusing on what I want out of this trip. Um... And it might be thinking about things. Well, you know, do I want gravel tracks? Do I want mud trails? Do I want easy back road cruising? Um, um, Do I want to immerse myself in other cultures Um, or see a a series of particular sites? Or it might even be that they actually, when they think about it, all they want to do is drop out and just go riding and see what happens. And I know some people feel a bit guilty about doing that, but why? Um, If that's what their journey... um, it should be like for them at the particular time that they're setting off and doing it, then great. Um, you know, I think working out what the person wants to do in advance is part of the mental preparation for hitting the road full of, which is going to be full of the unexpected. Um, and not only the unexpected in um, a challenging way, but unexpected possibilities. And by thinking deep about what a person wants before they set off, they're opening their minds to the things um, that are going to offer themselves. Now, we, let's, let's say a person wants to see um, over a three-month trip um, six particular sites and they're completely focused on that. Great fantastic. But the important thing is to realise the other things that they want out of their trip too, so that when opportunities pop up, their eyes and ears are are actually tuned in. I suppose it's a bit like lateral thinking. Do you remember when lateral thinking was around in what the early 90s or Mm -hmm. something like that? And there were a lot of party games. um, And they were great fun because they made us all think sideways instead of just straight ahead. And when you're travelling, it's often the things that are happening to the side that are the, the, the real value things, not the chase for reaching the end that's in front of us. Um, an open mind. It, it's a wonderful thing to have when you are traveling. And I think the more you realize what sort of journey you want to have, um, the more open your mind becomes. It's It's not... Uh, how can I put this? It's not shilly-shallying around with trying to meet other people's expectations. It's meeting your own expectations and and that's the real value of a of a trip, I think.
0: I like that. So you're not getting caught up in in doing the the destination, so to speak. I mean, you could even I guess, um, once you realize that that destination may not be your your end goal, you could even turn back before it without feeling terrible about not getting there and getting the t-shirt or the or the sticker or whatever it is for that case. So figuring out what you want in the trip, and, and making it about that rather than getting caught up in checking off, I've been here, I've been here, I've been here. I like that. Yes,
1: perfect. Yeah. Oh, absolutely perfectly put. Yeah, nicely summed up. Thank you. So what else? Okay. Um, my third one then is that old saying, the more you put in, the more you get out. There's never so true a saying as this, is there, where, where adventure motorcycling is concerned. Um, and if you're on a long journey... Well, yes, you can be a two wheeled hermit, but that just means you're insulating yourself from other possibilities. And there are times when I've ridden long um long periods on my own and I've I've reveled in the opportunity to be in what I call my helmet thought bubble. And dealing with other people, um, has sometimes become a challenge because I'm so used to just being me and thinking, What do I want to, to do today? Um and yeah, when Birgit and I started traveling together, that was a real culture shock for me, a mental culture shock, because I had become um, a two-wheeled um, hermit. Um, Hang on, and what's a I two-wheeled started, hermit? <laughs> it's a, motor, a solo motorcyclist who rides for a very long time on their own and um, forgets the importance of interacting with people. Okay. Does that make
0: sense to you? Yeah, no, no, I get it. I just wanted the mm. definition.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, You know, when Birgit and I started traveling together, I suddenly realized that I'd got to the stage where it was a bit of a shock to me to think in the morning, what should we do today, not what do I want to do? And um, my partner's looking a little bit weary. Perhaps we better stop earlier than we were thinking about doing. Or, wow, she looks absolutely enthused by that. Let's go and explore, even if I didn't particularly want to. So the more you put in, the more you get out Um, but it's not only from a relationship traveling, um, with a partner side of things. Um, it can also be something that you can weave into your day, which will, as a traveler, um, as an overlander, as an adventure motorcyclist, which can give you, um, nuggets of gold. And I think what a fun thing to do is when you travel is to look out for the opportunities where you can help somebody and actually look out for those, not just, oh, um, happen to notice that but actually look for them and do this each day and it might be something that somebody needs help with lifting something and you're riding past well hey stop turn around go back give my hand to lift it it takes you you know five minutes in your day to do that but that bit of help for somebody who's trying to load something in the back of a van or in the back of a car wow what a difference you're going to make to their day um There was a time in Guatemala, for example, and Birgit and I were just walking around the back streets. We love the back streets. Yeah, the tourist um, things to see. They're there for a reason. And tourists go to see them because they're interesting. But we love the back roads because that's where you can find where real life is. We we came across um, a truck that had been unloading sand and bricks. um, And somebody was obviously building their own house. This wasn't a big deal. Um, But their truck wouldn't start. And so... We we just hoed in and gave him a hand to push, push push the um the truck. My goodness, this thing didn't want to start either. So we were pushing it up down this road and it was a dirt road as well. But eventually we got it going. And the sense of satisfaction from helping somebody to do something like that was just a, a real buzz. Um, you know, one of the things with motorcyclists is never pass somebody who's broken down. Yeah. Because... That 20 minutes on our day, the loan of a tool, the loan of a phone when somebody's broken down and their phone's ran out of juice, whatever else it may be, Um, giving something back um, or giving more um, is just a fantastic thing to do. And this is just a thought that pops into my mind. If you're an honourable person, then this will also help you feel comfortable when you're asking for help when you need it. Because you've been giving help. You've been looking for opportunities. So when you suddenly get stuck, you don't feel comfortable, uncomfortable about asking for help. Um, One of the things that bothers me about some long distance travellers that I read about... um, (sighs) If you, if, you spend, if you concentrate on um, the more you put in, the more you get out, it also stops you becoming a traveler on the take. There are too many, I think, who seem to think that life should be or is a free lunch. And, you know, somebody gives them something or they help them and they give a cursory, you know, very curt, thank you very much, and off they go. Um, I think if you spend of your time um, giving first or at least give something back, whenever you've been given something, um, you can leave the memory of yourself in other people's minds as a fine addition to their day. And I think that that's um, an absolutely wonderful thing to do. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself very well here though, Jim.
0: No, I I like this because what you're saying is, is and really it works out all around. Everything you've said there makes sense because even if you you look at the example of going through, like say you you take from somebody and, and you don't really give back, you're really doing yourself a disservice there as well. Because you're not getting what you could have got from that. You're not getting that connection with the person. You're not getting the, the full experience, I guess, of travel, of being in somebody else's world. And that's the whole part of it. I, mean, I, I fully get what you're saying here. By putting in, by, by giving uh, or, or helping or at least connecting with people in a friendly, helpful way, then you're going to end up getting a much greater experience out of it. And it makes sense. I mean, even your example about pushing the, the, the truck there. I mean, that, um, that makes great sense.
1: It's a nice feeling. You know, all of these three points have been to do with how to make your day a happier place to be um, when you're on a long distance journey. Um, We're all going to face challenges out there. It's inevitable because we are putting ourselves in places where we're just not at home and that's part of the travel, isn't it? It's part of the buzz. It's the learning. It's, it's the challenge. It's the finding out who we are um, and how we cope with different situations. But every time you can have a day where you have gone through most of it with a smile on your face and um, a really good feel-good factor, well, a lot of that is complete, completely wonderful. And most of the time, it's not other people that will create that for you. It's what you create yourself with these three thoughts.
0: This is great. Um, I appreciate that, Sam. Thanks very much.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. uh, It's travel. um, Travel rocks.
0: That's Sam Manicom. And of course, you can hear Sam once a month on our RAW show, um, on Adventure Rider Radio's RAW show, but you can also check out his website, sam-manicom.com. His four books, um, Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, Distant Suns and Tortillas to Totems are all available on audiobook as well. So you can get them through Audible or through iTunes. If you've not read or listened to Sam's books, you're missing out on a a really, really good story. Start with Into Africa, um, of course, because that's the first one. So a few weeks back, we get an email from a sock manufacturer. And I'm thinking socks. Okay, it's one of those emails that's sent out to everyone. But as I read on, I realize this email was actually meant for us, us in particular. You see, this company makes some socks for motorcycle riders. And in the email, um, this the owner of the company, a fellow named Duke, is asking if I would like to try their socks. So I thought, okay, well, I'll give the socks a try. And in the next week, uh, in the mail, socks show up. So these weren't normal socks, though. As soon as I opened the package, I could see they're different. They, they sort of have like almost like an environmental-type packaging, but it was the socks. They're, they're sort of bursting out, bulging out of the, of the packaging they're in. They look so full, and when you touch them, they're soft and almost fluffy, but not, like, overly. It turns out the socks are made with a combination of merino wool and possum hair. Now, merino wool, I'm very familiar with, with outdoors activities. I love merino wool. It's great. It's lightweight. It's it's excellent for dealing with um, odor from, from sweat, etc. I mean, merino wool is a fantastic fabric, and I love it. And I've got a sweater right now. As a matter of fact, I think I'm wearing it that has merino wool in it. But possum fur, that eh, sort of threw me for a loop. And I thought, I got to get
4: this guy on the phone.
0: Now, uh, Duke, are you ready to go?
4: Let me get myself going. Hang on. Yeah. I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to raise up my desk so that it's at mouth level. How's that?
0: Wow, I heard an electric motor running there. That is very cool. <laughs> so you just raise the level of your desk.
4: <laughs> oh, if you if you don't have one, these, uh, these desks that go up and down so you can stand up at them are great.
0: I'm going to leave Duke messing with his desk for just a minute because I want to tell you what happened with these socks. I put them on. I went for a ride. I found them really warm. I was really impressed with them. It was just a short ride. After that, I went on a longer ride, which was a day's ride in in weather that was blowing and rainy. And just above freezing, I was going down to the Vancouver Motorcycle Show. They were great. As a matter of fact, what happened was I got to my son's where I was staying that night. And I realized I totally forgot about my feet. I totally forgot about the socks. I only remembered them when I actually pulled my boot off. And to me, that's the mark of a really good product. A product that does its job so well that you forget it's there and you start concentrating on other things. So when I got back from the trip, I I had another look at the company, and the company's called Pearly's Possum Socks, and the owner, Duke, who's adjusting his desk, turns out he's a lifelong motorcyclist, really not just a lifelong motorcyclist, he's a serious rider, has been his whole life. So there's there's quite a bit to the story, there's a story about how he made the socks, anyway, I love the socks, I'm a total convert, as you can tell, and I've made them the official sock for Adventure Rider Radio, but I I want you to hear this from Duke. You ready to go? I'm ready. Okay, I'm just going to introduce you. Um, this is Duke Lambert from Pearly's.
4: Pearlie's possum socks.
0: Right, and uh, Duke is the co-founder, co-owner of Pearly's. They make, um, well, they make socks.
4: Yeah, we make, uh, we make socks for adventurous people who love the outdoors, out of a combination of merino wool and New Zealand possum fur.
0: Well, Duke, I'm I'm really glad to have you on the show because you are making the socks, which are now my favorite socks out of any sock I've ever tried. But but I'm going to get to that. I don't I don't want to start this off with me gushing about your socks. Um, just tell me what what is Pearly's?
4: So uh, the story of Pearly's, if I may, is uh, my wife and I went mountain biking across New Zealand, the South Island of New Zealand. And it was summertime in New Zealand, and it should have been warm and sunny, but it wasn't. It was cold and rainy and wet and miserable. And uh, after several days in the rain, somebody said to me, they said, you need a pair of these possum socks. And I have, like many people, were like, what in the heck is that? And I went into a hiking store, and I found a pair of hiking socks that were made of in New Zealand of merino wool and New Zealand brushtail possum fur. I wore them for the next three days. and was blown away by how well they worked. And so when we came home, we actually, uh, reached out to the manufacturer and, uh, we ended up creating a sock initially for the bicycle industry. Um, and, uh, what it is, is it's a combination of Merino wool and brushdale possum fur that's woven into a very special yarn. And, uh, the, the possum fur is hollow, like a polar bear fur. And when you weave it together with the Merino wool, you end up with a, uh, Yarn that's very soft and comfortable, like you know, you might think of a mink coat or some piece of fur, uh, and yet very, very warm and very comfortable. And uh, it makes for an amazing sock. And that's how we got started. Uh, a few years ago, we added a moto sock because I'm a motorcycle guy, and uh, so and we'd been wearing our burles anyhow on the motorcycle. We just needed a tall one, so we added the moto. And today we build a. We have three different socks that we we make and manuf still manufacture in New Zealand and and sell all over the world via our website.
0: So would you say design the socks for cycling or for motorcycling? What what goes into that? Is it just the shape of the sock, the height of the sock, or is it the material, the the blend, I guess, uh, between the possum fibers and the merino wool?
4: It's all of the above. Um, There is uh, merino wool and possum fur, and then there's a small amount of lycra. About 10% in all of the socks, and uh, and the lycra is strategically positioned in the high wear areas. So it's a combination of it's it's designing them is trying to find a sock that has the right thickness and the right height, and then also the right amount of uh, lycra to protect the sock in the high wear points. Um, and so we, we look for all of those elements to try and come up with the ideal product.
0: There's some really neat um, qualities with merino wool. I think I'll, probably a lot of people have heard of merino wool, and I've had numerous sweaters which are, which are quite thin, um, and they're very warm because this merino wool is very good. It's, it's got it's got other qualities as well. Why the mix? What, what does the mix give you?
4: Well, um, it gives you two things. Uh, for one, the possum fur is very expensive, and so if we made it a all out of possum fur. The, the socks are already, uh, you know, it's a premium product and they would be prohibitively expensive. But the merino also does provide an additional layer of warmth and durability. Uh, and and the merino wool, the fibers are longer. And so we need that length in order to, you know, yarn is a woven item. We weave these, uh, the possum fur and the merino wool together. And so we take that longer strand of merino wool and weave into it the possum fur, and uh, the combination there gives us the strength that we need while retaining uh, the warmth. Both possum fur and merino wool are warm, with possum fur more warm, but uh, when you blend them together, you get the combination of strength and warmth.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I know merino wool to be very good. I I sort of used to consider it, (laughs) until I came across your socks, the the top of the line, but possum fibers are actually 50% warmer. Is that what it is, the merino wool?
4: Approximately, yes. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, they're very warm. And then they, and Merino Wall has great care, is a great product as well, as you know, and, and, uh, we love it too. But when you add in the Possum fur, it takes it to the next level. And you know, the, the Purlis, when you put them on your feet, it's, um, it's funny. It's an, it's an emotional event. It can be very relaxing and, uh, uh, they're, you know, they're very comfortable and they stay that way. And so when you're riding them, you ride all day and your feet are comfortable and warm. And I think that's really mostly the possum fur that's doing that. It's the it's the fur that gives you that kind of feeling of being uh, supported.
0: There's also antibacterial uh, component to this, isn't there?
4: There is. There is. They uh, And I'm not a scientist, and to be honest with you, I don't understand exactly how it works. But I know uh, that, you know, I all the time wear my pearlies and, and many of our customers do wear the wear them for days out of time and they don't seem to absorb the bacteria from your, you know, that your sweat. And so they don't smell bad. You can wear your pearlies day after day and, and they don't smell bad. And that is, you know, for, if you're going on adventures, uh, which we like to do, uh, it's great, right? Because you can't, you know, if I'm on a week long adventure, I can't, I don't have room to bring seven pairs of socks Yeah. And uh, and, uh, you know, I might now bring two pairs and, uh, and that's plenty. They'll work great.
0: Yeah, you, you, I've noticed that with merino wool. When uh, merino wool came around, at least to our circles, you realize that this is a material that you can wear, sweat in, take off, and it doesn't stink afterwards. Whereas a lot of the uh, inexpensive, um, sort of uh, technical fabrics you get, they have a tendency to really stink. As a matter of fact, even after you wash them, they they tend to stink, which you do not get with merino wool, and obviously with possum as well.
4: Yeah, absolutely. We've had that same problem. You know, we. 10 or 15 years ago, maybe it was a little longer than that, maybe 15 plus years ago, you know, the when technical fabrics were coming out and we we got totally into them and, and bought a number of pieces of apparel and they're great. And they still have some real benefits. But to your point, man, after you used them for a while, when you really sweated in them, you could, you could, you know, then I think now they have special detergent, right? Trying to find ways to clean them. Yeah. They, uh, so yeah, yeah right. it was a problem.
0: Hey, where does your, yeah. your riding background come from? Were you riding at a young age?
4: Oh, I've been a motorcycle guy my whole life. I I, I started riding motorcycles on a, a you know Bonanza mini bike and and to a Honda CT70 and uh, and then went through high school rode bikes and uh, and then in the early 90s I I moved to Lake Tahoe and uh, opened a little motorcycle shop up in Lake Tahoe and started racing bikes and and uh, then I uh, t- turned out I was a pretty good racer and. Uh, in '86, I, I went to Italy with the and rode the six days on the ISDE team, and came back. and At that point, my shop had grown into a Yamaha Kawasaki dealership up at Lake Tahoe, and uh, and then in the early '90s, I uh, my life took a turn. I had a, a an offer from one of my customers to go to work for him in Silicon Valley, and I sold the motorcycle shop and went to Silicon Valley. And, for years, people would look at me like they're like, "Why in the world did you do that? Are you crazy? You had the ideal job." <laughs> but uh, so I've been riding motorcycles my whole life, and uh, they're still a big part of my life. Uh, as we speak, my truck is loaded up with my GS 1200 and my buddy's GS 1200, and uh, I'm going to drive to Los Angeles tomorrow, and then uh, two of us are going to ride down into Baja for a few days.
0: Nice. Well, wow. So you rode the ISDN. It's obviously mm-hmm. you're you're an advanced rider.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I rode for team Husqvarna in the eighties and, uh, they were awesome. And, uh, I did, I did good at the six days. I got a gold medal at the six days. And, uh, I, I you know, I did a lot of racing for a lot of years. I raced three Baja one thousands and, um, uh, you know, there was a, the motorcycles were, I, I've always threatened to write a book, which says everything I know in life I learned on a motorcycle, because there's just so many things you learn lo- you know, you learn riding a bike. I was explaining to one of my nephews recently who doesn't ride motorcycles, but I was describing to him, he rides mountain bikes and stuff. And I was describing to him, I said, you know how, when you're riding you have to look where you want to go. If you look off the trail at the rock, you're going to hit it. You got to look where you want to go. I said, well, he's starting a company. And I said, starting your business is the same way. You got to look where you want to go. Never allow yourself to look at the rocks, look where you want to go. And, uh, you know, that's just one example of, I learned so many things from riding my bike. Good
0: piece of advice. That is so true. I, I've heard. Uh, I've heard that in other versions. But I like the motorcycle version. That's good. What is it about the this enzyme that's supposed to be in the possum fur that, to help with skin conditions?
4: Uh, you're getting technical on me here, <laughs> now, Jim. And, and- uh, well, when they as see as I see stuff said, like I'm this, not,
0: it, it catches me, and I'm thinking that this. This goes back to that thing of where like, we've got so technical in this world, you know, where we use all this advanced technology, and it's so often you find that that it's the natural things that have so many benefits that we walk away from when we get into to more high tech things. So that, that sort of jumps out at me.
4: Yeah, uh, and again, I'm not the scientist here, but but you know, the the possum fur has a lanolin like feel to it, and if you take a new pair of pearlies, and you rub them on your skin, you'll feel the oil from the fur, and uh, and it's that enzyme, the oils and the, the enzymes are in the oils, and um, that oil is part of what makes them, you know, it keeps the fur protected, and and it makes them very soft and very comfortable on your feet, and uh, and uh, it's it's part of the magic of the whole process.
0: That was Duke Lambert from the Purleys headquarters in California. Purleys possum socks, my now favorite socks and we've named them the official sock of adventure rider radio that's how tickled i am by their performance you can find out more about Pearly's at www.pearliespossumsocks.com and of course that link will be in our show notes as always you that this episode has been brought to you in part by max bmw motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com also best rest products at www.cyclepump.com green chili adventure gear at greenchiliadv.com and motobreeze chain oilers at motobreeze.com hey and you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies anytime you see them anywhere you mention that you heard them here on adventure rider radio up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener, thank you very much. Don't forget to drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Look at the show notes for this one. We've got that shot of Graham, and we've got a little note in there about the socks um, from Elizabeth's perspective. You might want to drop by and check that out. She wrote it herself, and um, kind of revealing for me, really, a little squeamish about having it on there, but in any case, have a look my name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. See you next week.
4: My name is Austin Vince, and I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. If you listen to this, you rule me. <laughs>